0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak.
1: Amen. Well, why don't you take your Bibles with me, and let's open up to the book of Daniel. Let's get this party started here, <laughs> picking the book of Daniel. Uh, definitely grateful to, uh, uh, to be back in the book of Daniel again. Uh, the last time we were in the, the book of Daniel, uh, all the king's sorcerers and all the king's men couldn't put Nebuchadnezzar back together again, and they were all subsequently placed under a death sentence, if you remember where we were uh, last time we were here in the book of Daniel. Uh, you'll remember that the king of Babylon had a, had a dream. Uh, the king had a dream. And uh, we find this one in Daniel chapter 2. I had a dream, the king says. And this dream troubled the king to such a degree that he demanded that the wise men prove that they were able to interpret the dream by first telling him what the dream was, which left the wise men in a very embarrassing and desperate position because they all knew that none of them had the ability to tell the king what was on his mind. First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? With, with all of their witchcraft and divination and secret arts, they were completely bankrupt when it came to answering the most significant and troubling questions of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And the same is true for us today, isn't it? The same is true for us today. With, with, with all of the advanced learning that we have, we cannot answer the most significant questions of life apart from the revelation of God. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world's wisdom is completely useless when it comes to the most important questions of life because they have no access to truth apart from God. The most important questions of life remain a mystery to them and the best that they can come up with is I don't know. All that they can be sure about is their ignorance. But when they... Speak about their ignorance. They don't want to hear about anybody who has any truth. (laughs) You know, they want to argue with you about what they don't know. And then they're offended when you tell them that I know somebody who does. (laughs) You know, nobody's come back from the dead to tell us what happens on the other side of the grave. Well, actually, I I know a guy. (laughs) You know, there is somebody who's come back from the grave who can tell us, you know, what happens on the other side. But they, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear about somebody who's actually giving truth. And the world's wisdom is useless to answer the most important questions. Wise men, as they call themselves, acknowledge their complete uselessness. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. And as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare to the king except God? whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh? You know, king, we're, we're, we're all out. We're, we're empty. Our, our bag of tricks doesn't work for this one. You know, how, how can we tell you what was on your mind? They're like the, the magicians of, of Egypt who couldn't duplicate the miracles of God. It's like, you know, we're, we're all out. We, we can't do this. this. This takes the finger of God to do this. And the king responds in a rage. Look at verse 12. It says, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And this sets up the, the stage for everything else that we're about to read, because the backdrop here, the backdrop here, is that the wise men are ignorant, their gods are impotent, and death is imminent. That's all that the world has to offer: ignorance, impotence and death, which was the perfect backdrop. For God to reveal his wisdom, power, and life. In, in contrast to the world's bankruptcy, we have a, a storehouse of riches. And all of these riches are made known to us through God's revelation. And that revelation is just as necessary for us today as it was for them during this time. And all of these men, these wise men, would have physically died unless there was a word from God. You understand that? You know, here, here they are, they're, they're asking, you know, king, tell us the dream. The king says, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You you tell me the dream. Show me that you know how to interpret the dream by telling me the dream. These men would have all died unless there was a word from heaven that could give the dream. And in a similar way, all of us would have remained in spiritual death and would have died eternally if God did not make known to us the mystery of His will. We we need a word from God. If we're going to have life, we need a word from God. In the book of Ephesians, which we Took a look at last week, Ephesians chapter one, verses eight and nine. It says, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And unless God chose to make his revelation known to us, we would all die. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. We need a revelation from God if we're going to live. If we're going to enter into eternal life, it's necessary that we have the revelation of God's truth and the opening of our eyes to that truth. It's necessary. And that's one of the attributes that we recognize about Scripture. It is, it is necessary. Scripture is necessary for us. The doctrine of the necessity of Scripture reminds us that what we need to know the most can't be discovered on our own. John Calvin, in his Institutes, calls the Scriptures our glasses or spectacles, the lenses through which we see God, the world, and ourselves rightly, that we cannot truly know God, His will, or the way of salvation apart from the revelation of God's Word. It's necessary. Without this, we die. And that's what we have illustrated for us here in a very tangible way. But in this case, the threat is physical death unless the revelation of God is made clear. And uh, let's start our reading at Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 19. It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we have requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went in to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. Father, we're just so grateful for your revelation. Father, we thank you for your truth, the truth that we can't live without. Father, we thank you for this book, Lord, which... Just exalts who you are, uh, Father, exalting your your sovereignty, your complete control over the nations. And uh, Father, in my own heart, just eager to to jump back into this book, Lord. There's just so many things, Lord, that this book declares to us. Uh, So many truths, Lord. So many wonderful mysteries that have been made known uh, to us here. Uh, Father, just an eagerness in my own heart uh, for this. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you, Lord, would um, uh, use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point is this. The revelation of God saves God's enemies. The revelation of God saves God's enemies. Look at verse 24 again. It says, Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. And we made this observation last time, uh, but, but it's worth repeating here that the revelation of God saves his enemies. And The majority of wise men that we're talking about here, with the exception of Daniel and his friends, were pagan witch doctors. The, the group, according to verse 2, consisted of magicians who were considered the chief priests of the wise men. They specialized in secret arts, were considered the scholars of the group. Conjurers, it's a word for those who were known for speaking with the dead. Sorcerers is a word that was used for those who practiced sorcery, incantations. They would use herbs to cast spells. And then the Chaldeans were a people from southern Babylon who were known for astrology. They kept track of the movement of the stars. And God had mercy on this group. This group of, of pagan, idol, false god-worshipping unbelievers. This is who God had mercy on. This group physically spared their lives. When, when Daniel replies to Ariok to let him know that he's received the revelation, he doesn't say, you know, hey, don't destroy me and my Hebrew friends. You know, take me to the king's presence. He doesn't say that. He says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation. He had compassion on the rest of the, the wise men of Babylon, and so did the Lord have compassion on them. And as we observed last time that we were here, there was a, a group of magi, Who were likely descendants of the same group who would later come to search for the Messiah. The the word translated conjurers, those who spoke to the dead in verse two is rendered in the Greek translation by the word magos, where we get our term magi, the word that was used for the wise men in Matthew chapter two. You know, the wise men seem to appear out of nowhere in Matthew chapter two. You know, they come with this request, you know, that's the search. You know, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Where, where did they get that idea from? You know, God had mercy. God had mercy physically on these men in the past. And in the future, God would have mercy on them again. And they would come and search for the Messiah. That question didn't come out of nowhere. They've been spared. And God had mercy even on his enemies. And who knows how many people here have been part of this kind of background maybe involved in some kind of witchcraft, sorcery yourselves. I've, I've heard the testimonies of people who've been here who've even dabbled into some of that. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, such were some of you, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We're not those who simply wish destruction on our enemies, on God's enemies. If you remember when the disciples attempted to make arrangements for Jesus and the the village of the Samaritans, the Samaritans did not receive him. And in Luke chapter 9, when his disciples James and John, John saw, that, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And after his resurrection, Jesus said, you'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, right? And Philip went down to the city of Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5 and began proclaiming Christ. The, the, the word of God saves even his enemies. And God's revelation does the same for us. And we should all know that because we are, we're all once enemies of God, right? Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God saves his enemies. Number two, Revelation brings honor to God's people. Look at verse 25. Revelation brings honor to God's people. It says, then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Arioch, the, the king's bodyguard, or in this case his executioner, having received news of, of Daniel, brought him in with haste. And, and apparently he never wanted to murder the wise men in the first place, which is why he had a conversation with Daniel back in verse 15. But here he brings Daniel in, and it's like he's seeking to gain some glory for himself. N- Notice how he introduces himself. I have found a man among the exiles of, of Judah. As, as if Ariok had anything to do with this. Ariok wasn't around searching for an interpretation. He was, he was looking for his next victim to execute him. You know, Now he wants to come in and, and boast as if, like, you know, I've... I got the solution for you, king. I found a man who can give you the interpretation. Ariach knew nothing. But here, Ariach seeks to gain glory for himself. But in bringing Daniel before the king, he does, whether he knew it or not, honor the exiles from Judah. Look at what he says. A man among the exiles of Judah. The revelation of God came through these Judeans. And that was a tremendous honor that we would do well to, to take note of. It, it didn't matter how oppressed the Judeans were or how they were currently being disciplined by the judgment of God. They, they still have the distinction of being the mouthpiece of God for His revelation. In the, the book of, of Romans, Paul recognizes that many of his Jewish brothers, according to the flesh, were accursed and separated from Christ. But he still recognized... These same Jewish people as being honored. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3 calls them my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants. And listen to this: the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises that came through Israel. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. And there there is this honor that is directed to these exiles who are currently under the judgment of God. Because it was still through them that the revelation of God was communicated. Think about this. Out of all the books in the Bible, the only books written by a Gentile were the books of Luke and Acts. Eusebius writes in his history that Luke was by race an Antiochian. Luke writes as a historian from the Lord, but he speaks about what God did through the Jewish people. (laughs) Every book that you read in your Bible is is colored by the, the Jewish history, the Jewish people. It's abundantly clear that God chose to work through a certain group of chosen people for millennia, for thousands of years, all the way up to the time of Christ and even during the times of exile and punishment. Why would we think that God would abandon that commitment today or in the future for this group of people. And we'll return to that idea later on in, in Daniel, but it's worth noting here that they're still in honor for the physical descendants of Abraham. And this is just another indication of that. Even during a time of judgment, these exiles you know, from Judea, they're the ones that are going to give you this revelation. Number three, revelation exalts the true God. Take a look at verse 26. It says, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. After Daniel is here asked about this interpretation, you know, we might have expected Daniel to just jump straight into it. You know, he's Asking for this interpretation, you know, you just expect Daniel to just come straight in. Oh, let me give you the interpretation, king. You know, yes, yes, sir, king, I I have the interpretation. You know, you want to hear it, here you go, right? You might expect him to just come in and give him the interpretation. But that's not what Daniel does. The, The first thing that Daniel does is he shames the gods of Babylon and then he exalts the true and living God of heaven. I mean, and this is an incredibly bold move for Daniel. Here we have Daniel... Standing before the greatest ruler of the ancient world. Later on, Nebuchadnezzar will be recognized as the head of gold. If you look down in uh, verse uh, 37 of uh, chapter 2, look at what it says about, about Nebuchadnezzar. It says, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them, you are the head of gold. So here Daniel is standing before the the greatest ruler of the ancient world. It's clear that Daniel is his subject. He doesn't even refer to Daniel by his Jewish name. He refers to him as Belteshazzar. You know, you're Belteshazzar to me. This king has already threatened to execute Daniel as well as all of the other wise men. It wasn't hyperbole. You know, this was a war general. He meant business. And on top of that, Daniel's already asked for more time. He's already asked for, for, you know, can, can you give me some more time before I make this interpretation known? And now Daniel's like stalling. You know, before I give you the interpretation, let me, let me just say something here. And the first thing that Daniel does is he shames the gods of Babylon and exalts the true and living king. This is an incredibly bold move, but it's the, the right move. Before the king hears what he wants to hear, Daniel says, you're going to hear what you don't want to hear. Because that's the whole point. God wanted this king and all who read this account to know more than just what will take place in the latter days. He wanted them to know that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that's the main point of the passage. And before you get caught up in the the details of the text, which we'll get into, uh, but before you start counting the fingers and the toes of the statue and you know, trying to figure out what all the, the different materials meant in the statue... If you fail to recognize that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, you've missed the whole point. This, this is the whole point. We know that this is the main point because this is what Nebuchadnezzar walks away with. Look at chapter 2 and verse 47. It says, The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. This is about the true God being exalted over ignorance and impotence of pagan idolatry. And Daniel gets it. So before he jumps into the interpretation, look what he says in, in verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare to the king. You know, basically he's saying, you know, they, they, they couldn't do it, could they, king? You, you asked them for it, did, did you get any answers from them? Oh, nobody could get it? Nobody knows. This is like like Daniel's Mount Carmel moment. You know, are your gods hard of hearing? You know, uh, did they go on vacation? Are they too busy to answer? I know. I know what happens. Maybe they're relieving themselves. You know, maybe your gods are. You know, occupied. You know, Daniel wants to make sure that the king recognizes that he has no answers from anybody else. King, you, you couldn't get an answer from anybody else, could you? At the time when you needed it the most, these false gods and these uh, prophets of yours, these sorcerers, were of no help to you, were they? The wise men and the gods they consulted were useless. Godless friends and false religion will be useless to you when you hit rock bottom. And I I wish people would understand that. You know, people kind of like live in this world as if, uh, you know, they, they have some answers, some help out there somewhere. But it's like all the things that they're pursuing after are going to be completely useless when you hit bottom, when you really need answers, when you're desperate for solutions. You're not going to find it in the world. You're not going to find it in false religion. It's going to come up completely empty. The place that you're going to have to turn is to the revelation of God. You're going to have to turn back to the Word of God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So Daniel points back to this God who is the revealer, of mysteries. This is about the exaltation of the true God of heaven. And Daniel does not hesitate to give glory to God, even though he's standing in front of the most powerful person in the world at this time. It doesn't matter who we're standing before. There, there's a power greater than they. God must be praised. Are, are you tempted to keep your faith silent under wraps when you know, the lane is open for you to give glory to God? Maybe the opportunity to share how God answered your prayers, clearly answered your prayers, but now you're you're tempted not to to speak up and and say, no, this is is what God has done. Does God deserve glory? (laughs) When when God rescues you from an impossible situation, are are you reluctant to say that, no, this is my God who's done this? Don't miss the window to give glory to God. Daniel doesn't miss the window. He sees the clear opening here. This is an opportunity to say that your God's going to do it, but my God can. And he gives credit where credit is due. And it doesn't matter who he's standing in front of because he serves the Lord of kings. Number four, Revelation brings understanding to the simple. Look at verse 28 again, middle of verse 28. It says, And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king... While on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. In Psalm 119 and verse 130, it says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And Daniel here doesn't credit any of his own learning or wisdom with the, the details of the king's dream. It's not because of me. Daniel, if you remember, he graduated top of his class, right? He and his friends were recognized as being ten times better than all the wise men in the kingdom. But Daniel recognizes that all the learning in the world wouldn't it help him predict the future or reveal the inner recesses of the king's heart. Knowing where a king's thoughts turn is not something that you can, you know, put in a little extra study for, you know, to achieve. It's completely, this is completely in the hands of the revealer of mysteries, which is how God is identified in this passage. Uh, the words reveal, declare, make known are used 11 times in the, the space of, uh, you know, 19 to verse 30, and all of it, the result of revelation of God. He declares, he reveals, he makes known. In verse 28, Daniel says, He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Which, which may at first seem like an odd thing for God to do. That, that He would reveal, like, the, the plan of the future to this pagan king. You know, why, why would He reveal His plan to an unbelieving pagan king? But we could ask another question. Why would God reveal His plan to any of us? Right? I mean, this is grace any way that you look at it. God isn't obligated to share His plans with any of us. Or we could ask, why would God reveal His plans to Jewish unbelieving kings? Forget the pagans. Many of the the Jewish kings of of Israel and, and Judah were also unbelievers. And God gave them special revelation and warning through the prophets. I mean, you can think about Ahab, for example. And ultimately, this was God's sovereign choice. Just like God troubled Pharaoh with a dream during Joseph's day, He troubled Nebuchadnezzar with a dream during Daniel's day. And Nebuchadnezzar was given this insight, you know, this gracious revelation from God, even though he didn't understand it. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream carried him far off into the distant future in ways that Pharaoh never imagined. In verse 28, it says, He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. That that phrase, latter days, is equivalent to a phrase in Hebrew that's used 13 times elsewhere in Scripture. Sometimes it's just a, a synonym uh, for what's coming in a later time. In uh, uh, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1, it says, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in days to come. Literally, in latter days. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in latter days. But many times this phrase, latter days, is used for things that will happen in the far distant future. For example, uh, why don't you flip over to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Because we have the same phrase used over here, the Hebrew translation of the same Aramaic phrase in Isaiah chapter 2. And it's used for a time that this world has not seen yet. The latter latter days, these latter times. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. I'll start at verse 1. It says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, latter days is the phrase there, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, "Let us come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war come house of jacob let us walk in the light of the lord it's clear that that's a time that we haven't seen yet right <laughs> we haven't seen that time yet and it's clear from the details of the prophecy in daniel that nebuchadnezzar is seeing things that are far distant far into the future Things that we haven't even seen in our lifetime. But why would the Lord take him this far into the future? Why would Nebuchadnezzar be chosen to receive this kind of of vision? Go back over to to Daniel chapter 2. The reason why the Lord took him this far into the future is because this is what Nebuchadnezzar was consumed with. Look at verse 29. It says, As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. Now, now, keep this in mind. Nebuchadnezzar had only recently come into power. He, he assumed the throne in 605 BC. He's only in the, the second year of his, his reign after the initial year of accession. Remember, uh, Babylonians didn't count the first year it was the year of accession. Uh, so this is his third year. He's only three years into this new empire. His father, Nabopolassar, was the first king of the Neo-Babylonian empire. And that was only in 627 BC. So this is an empire that's less than 30 years old. This would be like, uh, you know, George Washington during his second term in office wondering, you know, what's going to become of this new nation? Like like Nebuchadnezzar, George Washington was a, a general. You know, he was trained to fight. He wasn't trained to start a nation. So the obvious questions would be, you know, like, hey, is this, is this thing going to last? You know, will our enemy regroup and, and come back and take us over again? You know, what's going to become of our, our children and our grandchildren? What will happen when we, we pass off the scene? What's going to be our place in history? And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about. Like, like this, this kingdom's less than 30 years old. What's going to happen to us? What, what, what does the future look like? And you might find this interesting, but historians tell us that the average age of an empire is somewhere between 200 and 250 years old. The average age of an empire. America is 246. Alexander Fraser Tytler was a, a Scottish-born judge, writer, and historian. He was a professor of universal history and Greek-Roman antiquities at the University of Edinburgh. And listen to what he wrote. He wrote this. He says, The average age of this world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through this sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, From spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. And I'll let you take a wild guess at where America is on that spectrum. He also wrote this, he says, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largest from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. And we thank God for our country, and we're grateful for the many blessings that we've received, but we shouldn't think that we're indestructible. (laughs) shouldn't think that we're indestructible. Spiritual faith to courage, courage to liberty, liberty to abundance, abundance to selfishness, selfishness to apathy, apathy to dependence, and dependence back to bondage again. And Babylon, at this time, was in this stage of this kind of great courage. You know, they've been defeating all these nations around them. They're on top of the world at this time. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about the future. What's going to happen to this nation that's just been birthed? And the answer to these questions were beyond the realm of, of mankind. These are things that, that he couldn't gain without revelation. Our minds don't take us that far. And, and Daniel acknowledges that in verse 30. He says, As for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And God graciously gave Nebuchadnezzar a tour of the future. But before he hops on this bus, the tour of the future. Daniel makes a quick stop in the past. Let me first tell you about what your dream was. That was the the verification that he could predict the future, right? And if you remember, God made himself uh, actually uh, used the, um, uh, the the knowledge of things past and things future as a criteria for deity. If you're really a god, you know, tell us the past and tell us the future. You know, that's what he says in Isaiah 41. You know, present your case. You know, let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place and as for former events, declare to us what they were, so that we may know that you're gods. You know, if you're really a god, you should know the past and know the future. And if Daniel is truly speaking revelation from God, he should be able to uncover the past, which is exactly what he does. Look at verse 31. Daniel says, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a great, a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. He continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And at this point, the king is speechless. <laughs> speechless. I mean, what, what, can, what can you say after somebody's just read your mind? Somebody's walked around in your head. I mean, what, what are you going to say? It should be terrifying to know that somebody would know that level of, of detail. Actually, it should be terrifying to all of us that God knows what floats around in our minds, right? <laughs> God knows what you think. You know, be careful, little minds, what you think. And here, Daniel reveals the details of the king's dream in in stunning fashion. I even know what preceded your dream. You were on your bed thinking about the future. And then you had this dream, king. God sees the past just as vividly as he does the present. You know, every place is here for God, every time is now for God. And our dreams are no secret to the Lord of heaven. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream is revealed, and this is a dream that frightened the king out of his sleep, terrified him after he woke up, and infuriated the king to the point where he was ready to slaughter all of the wise men in his kingdom. And we'll go through this interpretation piece by piece, but just to give you the big picture so you have the big picture in your mind right now, and don't worry, we won't go through all of it today, there's no way. But just to give you the big picture here, Nebuchadnezzar is contemplating the future, the future of his kingdom. And then in this dream, he beholds this statue that's towering over him. And the king appears small and insignificant in the the presence of this great statue. And it's described as great, large, extraordinary, awesome in appearance. He's he's dwarfed by the size of it. It's brilliant. You know, like the the gold, the, the silver gleaming. And the next thing that he sees is a stone that strikes the statue feet first, but with such force that the entire statue is obliterated, and, and and from the initial blow of this stone, the entire statue disintegrates due to the force of the blow. And what you might expect to happen is that the statue would be driven to the ground. You know, after a stone strikes it, you know, you might expect it to be flattened. You know, by the force of the stone. But instead, the the gold, silver, bronze, iron are all exploding into these tiny particles of dust that the wind just drives away. So there's not a trace of what was there. There there are no lasting memorials, no museums, no ancient ruins to visit. It's all obliterated. No traces left. The stone is the only material that's left at the end, and it becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. Now, if you're the king, and you've just been contemplating the future, and then this is the vision that you get in the night... You can understand why the king couldn't get any sleep. (laughs) You know, he's ready to put men to death because he thinks that this is like this omen of the future. Like, this is what's about to happen. And these people who are supposed to protect him and give him insight into the future know nothing. That's why this was so urgent that the king figure out what was going on. And now, Daniel having proven his credentials, he's now ready to take the king into the future. Look at verse 36. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beast of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. At the very top of this immense statue that King Nebuchadnezzar stood before in his dream was a golden head. And Daniel says, you are that head. You are the golden head. And maybe that's one of the features that frightened the king so much. Maybe the golden face on the statue resembled his own face. And he watches the statue being pulverized right in front of his face, crushed into powder. It would be like watching your own funeral. You know, here he is watching him as the head of gold being pulverized and turned into powder. But also, this was a place of, of honor, being at the head of the statue. The, the dream doesn't begin with Pharaoh of Egypt. It doesn't begin with Sennacherib from Assyria. At the very top of the structure is Babylon and the king himself, the beginning of empires. And it's also sobering to note that the book of Revelation not only connects Babylon with the beginning of empires, but also with the end. Revelation 18 and verse 10 says, Whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Revelation 18, 21 then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. But this greatness was connected to, to Babylon, the first empire that's mentioned here. And Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar that whatever power you have came from God. The same God who gave you the dream is the same God who placed you at the head, and that should have humbled the king. You know, that whatever you have, the kingdom, the power, the strength the glory that's it's all been given to you Nebuchadnezzar had been given this dominion but it was given to him by the Lord and many interpreters wrestle with what does it mean for Nebuchadnezzar here to be called the king of kings you know what makes his kingdom superior to all the other kingdoms that would follow him and part of the answer is found in the kind of unhindered or unopposed dominion that he would have look at verse 38 it says wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. Unlike some of the other kings that followed, Nebuchadnezzar was himself the rule of his kingdom. He was the law of his kingdom. You know, other pieces of the, the statue represented the, the kingdoms that would follow, but the head represented Nebuchadnezzar himself. I am the head. He was the head. The kingdom of the, the Medes and, and Persians that followed Babylon had, had rules to follow. You know, they had the, the law of the Medes and the Persians, remember that? That even the king couldn't alter. You know, once the law was made, the king couldn't do anything about it. No such law existed for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had free reign in his entire kingdom, which is illustrated by, you know, even dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. It's a, it's a picture of total dominion. I have total control. And Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, under his leadership, the entire world of the ancient Near East was conquered, and it became a pattern for those that would follow after him. But he was the start of these kingdoms that would follow. And the magnificence of the kingdom is represented by by gold. And it's the most valuable of all the the metals that are part of this statue, also the heaviest of all the metals that are part of this statue. Nebuchadnezzar had a a special taste for gold. In the temple of uh, Marduk, which was the the chief god of the Babylonians, the inner shrine of Marduk, this false god, was embellished with gold. One, One source writes this, Of this inner cell, cella, Nebuchadnezzar says that he covered its walls with sparkling gold. I caused it to shine like the sun. Here, according to Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, was the great sitting figure of Marduk, their false god. All of the gold on a golden throne, supported on a base of gold, with a golden table standing beside it. It was told by the Chaldeans that to make it, all this was needed more than 22 tons of gold was used. And outside of the temple, there was also a golden altar. I mean, everything was gold, golden temple, you know, golden figures, golden stands. I mean, everything made of gold, 22 tons of gold used in in Babylon. Babylon was known for its gold. So when it pictures Nebuchadnezzar as this head of gold, it fit the empire of Babylon. And if Nebuchadnezzar was wondering about his future, you know, what's going to happen? The answer to that question comes in the very next verse. You know, I'm this head of gold. I've got all this power, this glory. But but what's going to happen in the future? Look at verse 39. Verse 39. After you. What, what does that mean? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to last. And your, your kingdom's not going to last. There's going to come an after you. After you, there will arise another kingdom. Inferior to you than another. Third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron, that breaks in pieces. It will crush and break all these in pieces. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're just one in a long series of kingdoms that will rise and fall and rise and fall and will not last. If, if, if George Washington was contemplating this during his second term, the answer would have been the same thing. There, there's going to come an end. There's going to be a rise and there's going to be a fall. None of these kingdoms were built with materials that were strong enough to last. Gold would not last. Silver would not last. Bronze, iron would not last. The clay would not last. They would all perish. They would be pulverized into powder and blow away with the wind. But there's one material that will outlast them all, and it's the rock. <laughs> it's the rock. Drop down to verse 44 real quick. It says, In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation trustworthy. And that there's so much that's contained in the details of this prophecy and the the other pieces of the the statue that we'll have to wait until the next time that we're here to cover it all, but it will be worth the wait, believe me okay there, there's so much that's in here but but this is a remarkable prophecy that, that gives this panoramic view of of history, past, history, and future it, it takes us from the the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, all the way to the reign of the Messiah and the Messianic Kingdom. It, it sweeps us all the way from ancient history all the way into eternity. Because this is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And it will itself endure forever. And in so many ways, getting a firm handle on this prophecy in chapter 2, the first prophecy in Daniel, will prepare you to understand the rest of the prophecies in the book of Daniel. Because all the other prophecies of Daniel, of necessity, have to fit into this one. Because it takes us from Nebuchadnezzar and goes all the way into eternity. Everything else has to fit inside of that. I mean, there's nowhere else to go besides eternity, right? Everything else takes place between Babylon and eternity. And if you understand this prophecy, it takes so much of the confusion out of the rest of the book. For example, we'll find a prophecy later on in Daniel chapter 7. And instead of four pieces of material that are used for a statue, it'll talk about four beasts. Where where do you think that fits into? Daniel chapter 2. There's some incredible parallels with the rest of the book. We'll take a look at those the next time we're in the book of Daniel. But but Daniel chapter 2 will help us answer questions about the nature of the kingdom. What kind of kingdom is this going to be? What kind of kingdom was Daniel anticipating? How would the kingdom of the rock appear? What effect would that kingdom have on the rest of the earth? Was it just a spiritual and internal kingdom, mystical kingdom, or would it have a material and external form? Is it only in heaven, or is there an expression on the earth? Would there just be a slow and gradual growth of this kingdom, or would it be devastating and cataclysmic? Is that kingdom now? Do we bring in the kingdom? Are we establishing the kingdom? Or does something else need to happen first before this kingdom takes place? And we're going to deal with, with all of that the next time we come back to this book, but you'll have to wait for it. But there's one question that you don't have to wait for, and it's this question. How do I become a part of that kingdom? How do I become a part of that kingdom? Because there, there's no question that this kingdom is a reality. Daniel says in verse 45, the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And the question is, are you a citizen of that kingdom that will endure forever? And you don't have to wait until next time to know that. You can know that you're part of that kingdom that will endure forever today because we know who that rock is. (laughs) We know who the rock is. We know who you have to get to in order to be a part of that kingdom. In Psalm 118, why don't you just flip over with me real quick. Psalm 118 prophetically speaks about the rock. Listen to what it says in Psalm 118 in verse... 22, Psalm 118, starting at verse 22. Listen to what it says about this, this rock. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Why don't you flip over to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus makes reference to the same psalm. Matthew chapter 21, look at verse 42. It says, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Sound, sound familiar? There's a stone that scattered everything like dust, pulverized everything, it became into powder and just blew away. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. And that's what the, the rock of, of Daniel does. It scatters the nations like dust. The one on whom it falls. First Peter. First Peter chapter uh, chapter two. Peter also picks up on the same imagery. First Peter chapter two. Look what he says in verse six. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse six. He says, For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they, were, they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Those who reject Christ are appointed for doom and destruction. And the image of Jesus as the Lord's anointed shattering the nations also shows up in the Book of, of Psalms, just uh, flip back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Listen to what the Lord says in Psalm 2, starting at verse, verse 8. Psalm 2, starting at verse 8. The Lord says, ask of Me. This is what He says to the Son. Ask of Me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Shatter them. Now therefore, a king showed a sermon. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There's no doubt about who the rock of Daniel chapter 2 is. He will scatter men like fine dust. And the men who reject Him are appointed for doom and destruction. He will shatter the nations like pieces of earthen pottery. They will be pulverized into dust. So how do I make sure that I'm part of that kingdom, that kingdom that will endure? I take refuge in Jesus Christ. That, that's how I make sure I'm part of the kingdom that will endure, that I'm part of His kingdom, that I take refuge in Him. In the verse 12 of the same psalm, it says, Do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. Take refuge in him. The only place of safety from the rock is in the rock. That's the only place of safety. It's it's placing your trust confidently in Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? It looks like abandoning all hope of establishing your own independent kingdom. Christ will crush all of his rivals. Christ will crush his rivals. And that's not a place that you want to be in. You must willingly give that up. I'm not here to set up my own kingdom. I'm I'm willingly giving the rights over to Jesus Christ. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your selfishness. Turn away from your, your, your own kingdom building. And give your life completely over to Christ, to the kingdom that will last. Turn your life fully and completely over to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, and in him you will find rest. And here's the reality. Jesus took the crushing blows of God's wrath in your place. Jesus, Jesus was crushed. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. All of your sin, your rebellion, your kingdom building apart from Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ Himself took the wrath of God upon Himself and was crushed for us so that we wouldn't have to be crushed by Him. Jesus took the crushing in our place. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He stood in our place in the place of of sinners, and he says, Father, crush me. Crush me, so that these who believe in me will not be crushed. He took the blows for us, crushed into powder so that the guilty can go free. And having offered up his life, completely satisfying the wrath of God, proving his satisfaction, he was raised from the dead, proving that there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only only place to be safe from the rock is in the rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand, right? All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We're just so grateful for uh, your revelation. It's your revelation that saves your enemies. It's your revelation that brings honor to your people. It's your revelation that truly exalts you, the true God. It's your revelation that brings understanding to the simple. It's your revelation that uncovers the past and veils the future and it also brings great reward. And Father, we pray that you would help us, those who are here, Lord, that we would dedicate ourselves to your words, your truth. I pray that if there are any who are here who have not yet turned to Jesus Christ, Now, Father, I pray that they would understand that this revelation can save them, uh, that that they who are your enemies, Lord, can be saved by your truth, Lord, if they would accept Jesus Christ, that if they would accept the one who was crushed in their place, uh, Father, that they can uh, receive forgiveness of sins, that they can enter into this eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will endure forever, that will never have an end. Father, they can be part of that kingdom. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, that would be true for, for everyone here, uh, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to you, Lord, and that uh, you, Lord, will be honored and glorified in our lives. Father, we thank you for the rock. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.
0: You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.